creativity isn't separate from us. It's not something we do. Mm. It's what we are. And getting divorced from that is, I think, somewhere in our lives we get divorced from that maybe because we inherently know it as kids and it's that the power is when we come back to it Mm. and understand that creativity is not out there, it's in here and it's always there. And even when we think we're not creative or not being creative, it's present in everything we do every day, how we love each other, how we love our friends, how we parent, what we cook, what we wear, how a good song might come on the radio and we let ourselves dance. It's not separate to us. It's in us. It's who Mm. we are. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today on the podcast we have a return guest. In fact, this is Holly Ringland's, I'm pretty sure it's her fourth visit to the Convo Couch. I've spoken to Holly about her first book, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. We had a, a conversation about saying no to fear when, and we also spoke about her second book, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding. Today we're going to chat about Holly's new book, a non-fiction memoir on creativity, aptly called The House That Joy Built. Let me tell you a little bit about Holly, just in case you don't know. Holly Ringland is a writer, storyteller and television presenter. Her award-winning internationally best-selling debut novel, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, has been published in 30 countries or territories. It won the General Fiction Book of the Year Award at the Australian Book Industry Awards in 2019 and has recently streamed globally in 2023 as a seven-part series on Amazon Prime starring Sigourney Weaver. And if you haven't seen that yet, even if you haven't read the book The Lost Flowers, I highly recommend you popping in and watching the series. It's such a beautiful adaptation of Holly's book. It's a must-watch. The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, Holly's second novel, was published in October 2022 and became an instant national bestseller in Australia and New Zealand. It was named as Booktopia's 2022 Book of the Year and has been voted by readers into Dimmick's Top 10 Books and the Better Reading Top 100 Books for 2023. Throughout 2020, going back a little bit in time, Holly travelled Australia to film Back to Nature, a visually stunning eight-episode series she co-hosted with Aaron Pedersen. And again, highly recommended viewing. Holly's new nonfiction book about creativity, as I mentioned, The House That Joy Built, has just been published and we'll be speaking about it today. This interview is a long one. I did try to edit out as much as I could, but there's just so much great stuff here in this conversation with Holly. And I did think about splitting it in two, but it's really a whole conversation. So 
Always remember that with a podcast, you can stop and start and come back to listen to it if you don't have time to listen to the whole thing in one go. But I'm sure you're going to love listening to this chat with Holly as much as I enjoyed having it. So here we are with Holly Ringland on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Holly Ringland, welcome back to Rights for Women. Oh, thank you, Pam. It feels like coming home. Back on the Convo Couch. I'm in the van. of course, inspired by you. So thank Aww. you again. Oh, Pam, my pleasure. <laughs> Spread the joy. So before we get on to talking about the house that Joy built, which is our mm-hmm. main of conversation, I'm sure there's <laughs> going to be lots of tangents. Yeah. Uh, seeing Alice and oh. your gorgeous story, Holly, transformed so amazingly onto the screen has been a joy for me. So I can only imagine what it has been like for you. I've been asked this question a lot, as I'm sure you can imagine, since the show came out in August and Prime Video were kind enough to ask me to talk about it and do some publicity. And the thing is, Pam, I get no better at knowing how to answer this question because I I don't have words. It The answer feels like an emotion that I don't know how to name. And it's an emotion that is made up of many different emotions that fire in my body all at once. So there are all of the emotions that, like you say, when you watch it, it was a joy for you. And so in that em- like emotional, empathetic way, you're feeling what I'm feeling. It is a, mi- like a mind-blowing joy and it is incredible and it is amazing and it is bewildering and impossible, unbelievable. So it's all of that emotion family. And at the same time, in the same emotional experience, it is also surreal and it feels like I can feel my physical brain kind of hurting while I try and understand that I am seeing brought to tangible life in front of me on screen objects, elements, moments that I also have the memory of where I was in my life when I made them up. And so I feel my brain folding in on itself while I'm trying to get my head around that. And then at the same time, firing in the same emotional experience. So we're all still in the one experience, right? And this is why I don't have words because there's no name for this simultaneous emotion is that this story the story of Alice Hart as because I've had such beautiful conversations with you on this very convo couch over the years is this story is drawn from my lived experiences it's the emotional truth of my lived experiences and so I am watching some sort of confusing experience between memory and fiction and imagination and emotional truth all coming together. So there's our third compartment of emotion. And then the the final thing is let's just throw in Sigourney Weaver (laughs) and Asha Ketty and Leah Purcell and Alicia Debnam Carey. Let's throw all of those kind of small deal gals Let's throw all of them in to play 
the characters that lived in my body and in my head alone with me. Let's throw all of them in and let's make it global and let's let's break records with how many people watch it in the opening. Oh, Pam, I just, I do a lot of staring at the sky, at the wall, at into the distance. I, I still don't fully understand it. I don't think I ever will. How could it ever possibly sink in? I hope it never sinks in. I hope I never get used to it. It is the most impossible and extraordinary thing that I never saw coming in my life in a thousand million possibilities for what could happen to me Mm. and my writing in a lifetime. It's complete. I don't even, I could just sit here for an hour with you trying to find the words and I won't find them. Well, I think that was a pretty good summary of how it, a smidge of how it must feel. Yes, it's, and and it's been a really powerful reminder that even the greatest joys can be stressful to manage, that that along with joy comes a lot of other things to manage as well, Mm -hmm. fear of being seen, vulnerability, traumatic experience memory like they're all in there what a cocktail what a cocktail but what an incredibly wonderful thing just utterly unbewildered mm. yeah perfect summary i think bewildered. of course the end. yeah we could go on and on but <laughs> but i think that is actually a perfect kind of segue into talking about the house that joy built because oh. of course the writing of alice hart as your first published novel, you've written many things prior, but as your first published novel and your first foray into having your work really seen by the world mm. and all the emotions that, that, that come mm. with that, that's really the subject of this nonfiction memoir, isn't it? Yes. It, the house that Joy built didn't exist. We're in, what are we? We're in October. It didn't exist in February of this year of 2023 not in a way that I could see it Mm. anyway like I had no idea in February of this year that I was going to write my third book this year at the same time I think I have been writing the narrative of this book with my thinking for probably about eight years now and that is what the incredible power that Catherine Mill, my publisher, has in the ways that we know each other so well, making stories together is at the beginning of this year, she said to me, you have a lot to say about creativity and joy and grief and fear and trauma and power and freedom. And my sort of basic front like brain response was, no, I don't. No, I don't. I'm not that person. I'm never writing nonfiction and I'm never writing memoir. And so hilariously, Catherine and I have been laughing because I think the subversive way that I might ever write memoir is if I'm writing about something like creativity. Yeah. And the reason I say that is the reason I give that context is because once Catherine and I had enough conversations about the possibility of me writing this book, I realized straight away that 
I would not, if I was going to write nonfiction and if I was going to write about creativity and all the forces and states of mind and emotion that feed into it for us or block us from it, there is no way I was going to write this book at arm's length distance from the page. Mm -hmm. The only way that I felt like I could put a book into the world and offer it to readers was if I was the hamster. And that's actually, that's a terrible, I'm anti-animal cruelty and experiments. <laughs> hamster in a really big free-range, free-range, loving, like zero sort of pain and torture. But I needed to be, the, what I mean by hamster is I needed to be the case study. I have read so many books about creativity and soaked them up and wanted to fully soak them. And then I would disengage the minute that the author would say, and now we have um, Joe. And Joe is, and suddenly I'm ripped out of what I'm reading and I'm reading about something that feels abstract because mm -hmm. I don't know who the case study character is. And I thought, it's the only way that I can talk about this. It's the only way that I can honour the gift that readers have given me, which was the sort of like double prong approach that Catherine took with me. She said, you have a lot to say about this and your readers have been asking you about this for years, asking me, how do I create when it hurts? How do I create when it feels like a waste of time? when so many people are suffering in the world, when there is so much suffering in the world, when there is the climate crisis and inequality. And, and Catherine said to me, I've been watching you at events and I've been watching you have these conversations and you have something to put on paper. And so to honour both her belief in me but to honour that gift readers have given me by asking me those questions in a big roundabout way, deciding to do this, deciding to say yes to Catherine Milne because I defy the person, I dare the person who says no. But to say yes to the opportunity to write it, I just knew that I would not hold myself back from the page. It had to be, if I was going to encourage people to open themselves up and go inwards, I would need to do the same. Mm -hmm. And so that is why the segue is there because the first time that I majorly cracked myself open in my life from years of fear stopping me from writing, which is the source of my creativity, was finding the courage to write The Lost Flowers of Alice mm. Hart. Holly, I have to say there's a bit in the introduction and then you talk about that moment where you sat down and that opening sentence, which I'm sure you've heard this before, but in my opinion is one of the best opening sentences I've ever heard, yeah. to the, the beginning sentence to The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. I was lying in bed because I've been listening to the audio book of The House That Joy Built and I was lying in bed on the weekend and I listened to that and I have to tell you that not only that sentence but the way that you explain how it felt to be putting those words on the page for that very first time, I actually had goosebumps all over my body. 
I might actually, what I, I think I'm going to do is, if it's all right with you, I might actually insert that little bit of reading into the podcast just so listeners can hear that. Yes. Um, Pam, just popping in here, everyone, here is the excerpt that I was talking about with Holly just now from the house that Joy built. By it and sick of feeling pinned down by fear, decades of fear. In a rage, I rummaged through my desk for a notebook and pen. What would happen? I demanded of myself aloud. If for once I didn't listen to the fears in my head that I have been listening to for as long as I can remember. What if fear wasn't the first thing I listened to? I opened my notebook and took the lid off my pen as I bargained with myself. What if I didn't listen to all the reasons I can't do this? The next moment is one I will treasure and revere for the rest of my life. As though I was outside of my body, I watched my hand write the first words that came into the tiny quiet space I'd carved out in my mind. No matter how many fearful thoughts were pressing in from all sides, in the weatherboard house, at the end of the lane, nine-year-old Alice Hart sat at her desk by the window and dreamed of ways to set her father on fire. I sat back and dropped my pen. I remember saying something aloud, holy fuck, followed by, here she is. And there she was, Alice Hart, the main character of my debut novel. Suddenly, in that moment, I found myself obliged to a nine-year-old child who needed me to tell her story. I knew, looking at the words I'd written by hand on my page, that despite how my hands were shaking, I would not let fear stop me showing up for her. Laying down of that very first sentence, as you say, was a way of really cracking open your creativity, yeah. wasn't it? And then you talk about in the book this whole process that as anybody who is a creative, whether you're a writer or, and you talk about this also in the book, it doesn't have to be writing. It could be yes, art, it could be cooking, it could be gardening, it could be jewellery making, any number of things. But that yes. fear that we have of actually putting the words down or making that brooch or planting that whatever it is we want to plant, mm. we can be held back for so long, but then suddenly something does crack us open and then it's just like a blooming, isn't it? Of Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can feel it. That reminds me of the, the quote from Hilma F. Clint that's at the back of the book towards the end where she wrote something in a journal that speaks in effect to the idea that we might go on for months and years thinking that we are without growth and that there is no seed, there is no life, that we are fallow and barren and there is nothing inside of us that can yield any wonder or magic or awe or any of the things that we feel when we dwell in imagination. Mm -hmm. But then something will happen, like you say. For me, it was, and I talk about this in the book, it took a bereavement, a, a, a deep grief, a deep and painful grief 
from the death of um, a loved one in my family, it took that to finally bring home to me how much of a bore and how much of a thief fear is because fear is boring in the sense that when it's not protecting us from life-threatening danger, it's stopping us. As a, It's a reason that stops us from following instinct. And it's a thief because if we're not careful, it steals our life from us that we could be spending living in free flow with our imagination and that mm-hmm. place inside of ourselves. Yeah. And it had become so powerful in me that it did take a full cracking open. It really was a reckoning with myself. Yeah. But it's funny, I ride horses and uh, a horse. As somebody who came to it, like I came to writing later in life, mm-hmm. the fear is always there and I'm, I'm always trying to conquer the fear of the riding. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got a new horse and he's beautiful. He's just, he's amazing. But the fear is always there and I've had to step up to a new kind of level of riding because they've finally shoved me out of beginners after about 10 years. <laughs> that happens when you practice and do something enough. You get shoved <laughs> out of beginners, don't you? <laughs> and and I guess it's a bit like riding. I keep getting to these points where it's I can stay here and be stagnant mm-hmm. and not ever get any better or feel any more connection with him or I can push myself beyond this kind of fear that keeps holding me back. And Mm. last week I actually rode him at home for the first time alone on my own with no one home. Mm. And just that one little thing, it was a big thing to me, but to somebody else it, it would be nothing. But for me to actually ride him here on my own with no one at home was Amazing. It's, it's an opening. Yeah, it is that opening it's, thing. Yeah, and it shows what you can do. Once once you've taken that step, you can't unsee, unknow, unlearn yeah. that growth. Yeah. Then you're in that position with yourself where you also can't lie to yourself. You can't say to yourself, I can't do it anymore because you've yeah. done it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like when you finish a novel, isn't it? Absolutely. And then you get to the one and you think oh no I can't do this and you think actually I can because I've done it yes and and you're cultivating without even being conscious of it you're cultivating self-respect you're cultivating your own embrace and acceptance of growth and it doesn't feel good this is the thing that really amuses me about being human is that the things that we want the most right we have to be brave to do them Because of the culture that we live in, Mm -hmm. this constantly on, constantly producing, constantly the words we use, hustle, slay, smash, like we are in this never turns off neon landscape of on and doing and producing. And part of the reason why I think that we're so afraid of creating is because we have to justify to ourselves and therefore everybody around us, that our imagination and pottering and being idle and trying new things without knowing what the outcome will be is a really valuable way to spend our time because it might not produce something 
Maybe it's about trying. Maybe it's about thinking. And that acknowledgement of what we get out of trying and thinking and spending time focused and connected to our imagination is just not something that is considered produce or outcome, productive, anything like that. And to do it, to get on your horse, to sit at your writing desk, to go and buy your model train set because it lights you up inside, you have to find bravery. You have to find courage to stand for that being a valuable thing to do with your time. But the thing about being brave is it doesn't feel great. (laughs) Being brave does not feel like a puppy getting their belly tickled or lollipops and rainbows or like the most joyful day of your life. Being brave feels fucking scary. Feels really good afterwards, but at the time, scary shit. (laughs) After you've done the thing, that's when you get the endorphins and the payoff and the relief, the joy, but the doing is uncomfortable. The doing and the bravery and the courage of the doing, that's the discomfort. Yeah. And that's the exhilaration. You got on your horse, you did the thing. You Mm. did the thing with this beautiful horse. And that's the other thing about horses, right? They can read your emotions. So when you're scared, it's contagious and they feel that fear. That's a great example. Yeah. And I was thinking about this as I was listening to the house that Joy built and you talk about, which we're going to get onto in a minute. Sorry, I've gone on the horse tangent. Love um, it. Any opportunity. <laughs> you talk about taking different steps and finding ways around that fear and getting through that process. So I thought, okay, I've got to work out strategies. I put some music on and listened to some music while I got him out of the paddock and I took all my gear down. I, I anticipated all the things that were going to stop me and yes. then I prepared in advance, got everything ready, had everything laid out. Mm. And you talk about this too. Shaping behavior. Yeah. Thinking ahead and trying to prepare for what obstacles might come up and then mm. doing it. Let's go on to that now, Holly, because you do talk about that in the book mm. and those, that idea of taking small steps towards embracing yes. creativity and getting yourself into that mindset where you do yes. feel you can actually start on something. Yes. So I'll use myself as an example. It will be different for maybe everybody, but the examples that I used in the book is talking about when I was in the process of writing the first draft of The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, which I want to be really clear, scared the absolute shit out of me every day. I never was cool and breezy about it. It never felt like my nervous system was settled whenever I went to my desk. It absolutely terrified me. And so what I learned through trial and error was that managing fear, anxiety, self-doubt, inner critic, past traumatic experience, all of these things that we hold in our minds, that we have in our minds, that whenever we approach anything that puts us at risk, like it it doesn't have to be Mm life-threatening. It's just, okay, I'm going to go and work on my novel today. Oh, my God, instant vulnerability alert. 
and in swoops everything mentally to try and stop me from being at risk of we don't know what's going to happen. We being all of the party of negative voices in my mind, we don't know what's going to happen. You're probably going to write total shit. This is going to be terrible. Let's not do it. So off they go. The alarms start firing. And I learned trial and error that with all of that noise and those intrusive thoughts in my head, when I would try to go to my writing desk and my objective for the day was maybe write chapter six, I would sit down with a loose idea of maybe where chapter six started and I would start trying to write and it just felt like there was a tsunami rising in me and mentally I just would get completely and very literally mentally overwhelmed. I had a very vague idea of what I was at my desk to do and I had too many forces at play in my mind. You know, anxiety on its own would have been enough, but really negative voices, as I said, inner critic, self-doubt, everything firing all at once. And I couldn't write. I had to, and then sitting there in my body, with my body stationary, while all of these really agitating emotions and thought processes were going on. It felt like my body was going to explode, like one of those party popper things that scares the hell out of everyone. So I I would take my body out to move, to try and move everything through my body, and I would run or walk, and I intuitively please, started. Please talk about the donkeys too. Okay, great. <laughs> I was like, should I talk about the donkeys? Yes, definitely. So I, this is how it happened, that this was all in Manchester where uh, I was living when I wrote Lost Flowers. And behind our house in Manchester, UK, I should say, there's a long path behind our house. And I write about this in the book. And it goes for kilometres in either direction. And I'd walked it a lot. But during this time when I was writing Lost Flowers and... It was just so painful. I would go to my desk. I would sit down to write. My notes in front of me were as brief and limited as write chapter six, and I would just fall apart. Overwhelm would just take my brain, and I couldn't function. I couldn't write, and I didn't fully understand why, and it was very frustrating, and in that state of mind, it's very easy then to turn on yourself. And to start thinking, my God, why can't I do this? And that's very easy to start turning on yourself with not very kind inner dialogue. As I said, I knew from being raised by my mum, who's very active, take, get your body moving, step away from the desk, sitting there, sitting still, it's only going to make it worse, get away from the desk. So I laced up my shoes, I went to this path behind our house. And I started running and I've run all throughout my life since I was a kid, but I started running in quite a sustained way. And I started going further and further distances and then would turn around and come home. And one day I ran right to the end of the path behind the house and discovered the most unlikely surprise, which is at the end of this path through all different suburbs and green space there's suddenly a donkey sanctuary filled with 
the most beautiful creatures, these donkeys that are being cared for and are in rehabilitation. I don't even want to know from what, but are being cared for. And I was kind of jaw-dropped by the surprise of finding this place in Manchester, which is still very much, still very much looks and feels in some ways like what it is, the world's first industrial city. And there I am standing in a field looking at this little donkey sanctuary that I didn't know was anywhere near our house. So I started to run regularly to the donkey sanctuary because I loved hearing their braying, their little happy braying in the distance. And I then started to come back to my desk from the running and the open eye meditation of the running and the flow on effect of to make myself run. The only narrative I could hold in my head was one step at a time, keep breathing, don't push it, don't injure yourself. If you keep a steady pace, you can run 8K. You can go 4K there and 4K home and you won't injure yourself. Go steady. And I got home after doing this for a while, I got home and changed, intuitively changed my approach to what I was writing in understanding that when I pushed myself too far, if I pushed myself too far running, I would injure myself. And that started to mirror how I was feeling at going to my desk, expecting myself to write chapter six in one day. Yeah. So I started to think instead of chapter six, maybe I just start with Alice is waking up at Thornfield. What does she see through the window? Mm. So I would write that down on my to-do list. Today at my desk, I am going to write what Alice sees when she wakes up in Thornfield and looks out the window. And this constant sort of running, the donkeys, coming back to my desk, I started to intuitively break down this process into tiny steps that were achievable. I could write what Alice saw through the window and it felt doable. I didn't feel like a failure from the outset. I didn't feel like I was everything negative that the voices in my head were trying to tell me that I was, which is just awful stories. I achieved it and it didn't matter. I knew it didn't matter If the sentences weren't right or the writing wasn't polished, it was getting the world onto the paper from my heart. And I would do that and I'd be like, shit, I've got time to have a cup of tea and do something else this afternoon. So then I would be like, write the conversation Alice has when she comes downstairs. What's the tension like when she comes downstairs for the first time in Thornfield's? And then I did that, Pam, and all of a sudden it was like I didn't feel like the most hopeless person in the world or that I wasn't good enough or that I was a failure before I even began. I felt like I was doing these tiny little achievable tasks. And so here is the cracker. That was in 2015, I think, 2015, I think, when I was doing that. So we're eight years later now. Mm. It is not until I wrote The House That Joy Built 
eight years later. And this is the magic of story. This is the stuff that we don't understand and we can't prove through research and neuroscience. But I was running to those donkeys. I was watching them, saying hi to them, listening to them, coming home. I knew nothing then about shaping behavior. I didn't go home and read about how to rehabilitate donkeys. I was too busy going home and trying to figure out why I couldn't write and how to get myself writing and breaking it down into little steps that I was figuring out because I was running to these donkeys every day. And it's not until eight years later now, this year, when I wrote The House That Joy Built, that I did research those donkeys and found out that the way that donkeys are rehabilitated was exactly the same thing that I was doing to myself at the desk to get myself to write because the big light bulb moment for me was realizing one day after I pushed it too hard when I was running and I hurt myself, I caused a hip injury, was that I couldn't write because I was asking my brain to come to the desk and draw fiction from emotional truth of a lived experience of having lived with and survived, I suppose you would say, male perpetrated violence. My brain was just constantly shutting down. And on top of that, I had all of the just normal self-doubt and inner critic. But when I started to break it down into tiny steps, right, the view through the window, it was accessible. I wasn't being swallowed whole by this idea of right about loving a violent man. I was writing about a view through a nine-year-old's perspective in fiction of what was in her window. And that is exactly how donkeys are rehabilitated from whatever unfathomable and horrific situation that they have been rescued from is that the trainers and the like head educators with donkeys, they break the steps down with donkeys right down into the smallest steps like the human trainer should perhaps start by just standing by the donkey's shoulder and just breathing with the donkey so that they can feel each other and know that they're safe. And then there'll be another tiny step where maybe the trainer steps towards the donkey's front hooves. And this is another sort of like building exercise that keeps the donkey calm And the donkey's getting rewards, so they're feeling like, okay, I've done a good job. And these tiny steps are what the donkey rehabilitators call shaping behavior. And the smaller the steps, the greater the likelihood is for success. And I cannot speak for anybody else, Pam, but that is 100% the way that I wrote The Lost Flowers. Donkey rehabilitation training worked on Holly Ringland. (laughs) And I had no idea until I wrote this book. That is what was happening at the sanctuary the whole time I was running there and back. I had no idea that those were the steps that that was going on with the donkeys. That I was, it's a beautiful thought, isn't it? That was there some sort of osmosis? going on yeah who knows really exactly it's unfathomable 
just one of the magic moments of writing the book. Like the donkeys, Holly, you do reference a number of other researchers and Mm. speakers and scientists and things in the book. You must have gone down some amazing rabbit holes. When oh, my God. When my Google search history. <laughs> my Google search history is just a feast for anybody looking for a weirdo. Like, <laughs> Yeah, writing this book was a little bit like building a campfire. And I didn't want my experiences to be the only stories gathering around the fire, so to speak. Yeah where I use myself with examples and drawing on my own life experiences, I also bring a wide variety of voices to the campfire for the reader so that they can hear from all sorts of other different people in different life experiences and stages of their creativity, their creative process, and particularly even not being creative professionals, just more people who integrate creativity into their lives every day. I wanted to bring lots of voices to the fire without bogging down the narrative, but more in the spirit of, see, you're not alone. We're not alone in all of the fears that we feel. And also, in all of the things we instinctively know about how creativity makes us better people when we are connected to it. Mm. So the rabbit holes I went into was everything from animal experts talking about what animals do to each other in a state of play to A-list celebrities like Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks talking about feeling like frauds to donkeys, to dung beetles, Pam, researching dung beetles that literally need the feces of other animals to live was a combination of giggling and and connecting it all to being a mirror to the creative process and to ourselves. There were some moments where I was just roaring with laughter I cried a lot while writing it as well. Other moments where I was like, what the fuck is this book? What am I writing? What? A, but it was, it was such a meta experience. I would be writing about, in the book I explore eight types of fear or mindsets of fear. And as I say in the book, the types of fear I experience are Far from eight, but let's just keep it to eight. Otherwise, we'll have a 200,000-page book. And so I structure the book by sharing eight different types of fear, just a sort of completely non-specific fear. We don't even know what we're afraid of. It's just fear. I'm afraid today. And then with each state of mind or, or mindset that comes from fear, I meet it with the remedy or the state of mind that I approach it with. So for that broad fear, I meet it with play. Or for self-doubt, I meet it with self-compassion. In a critic, in a fan. And to talk about all of these things, it, it is another reason why it makes it really powerful, I found and felt, to bring other people across all sorts of areas like neuroscience and life coaching and self-compassion expert research and creativity experts 
to just show that creativity isn't separate from us. It's not something we do. Mm. It's what we are. And getting divorced from that is, I think, somewhere in our lives we get divorced from that maybe because we inherently know it as kids and it's that the power is when we come back to it Mm. and understand that creativity is not out there, it's in here and it's always there. And even when we think we're not creative or not being creative, it's present in everything we do every day, how we love each other, how we love our friends, how we parent, what we cook, what we wear, how a good song might come on the radio and we let ourselves dance. It's not separate to us. It's in us. It's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I love something else that you, you just mentioned was about the ourselves as a child and yes. about this yeah. in the book and really resonated with me. I did years and years ago now, I did uh, a series of workshops with a fantastic writing teacher called Joyce Conblatt and she's a beautiful writer and a, a fabulous teacher, Buddhist background and very much mm. into meditation and as one of the exercises that we did, ha- we had to bring a photograph of ourselves as a child and the instruction was don't labour over too much which picture to choose, just go to the fo- photos. It wasn't hard for me because there's about three photos of me as a child so oh, I just gosh. chose one. But the meditation was basically to really just focus on that child. Who is this child? And we did this whole meditation around this photograph and it was such a powerful exercise. Oh, really, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I'm just sitting here thinking, how did you go? I'd still have the journal stuff that I did back then. Mm. I'm sure somewhere I never throw anything out. And I've still got that photo pinned to my corkboard, actually. And it was this exercise of looking at yourself as that child and having that compassion for who that child was and just opening up a bit of a dialogue with yourself as that child. And it was a really powerful exercise. When you talk about in the book about this idea of reconnecting with our our childhood self and our inner Mm -hmm. child, it is such a powerful thing to do. It's incredible, isn't it? And I thought about this and I talked about it a lot with my closest circle while I was writing the house that Joy built because there are some people that can hear the phrase and in my life I've been one of them, can hear the phrase in a child and just shut down. Mm-hmm. It's That is too Byron Bay, that is too cheesecloth, that is to woo all you've said are the words in a child and it's just the connotation is just and shut down the very first time i went and saw a psychologist in my in adulthood when i was trying to find my way into managing post traumatic stress disorder i remember i didn't write this in the book but i remember our very first at our very first appointment she sat down and a good psychologist will give you space and let you be and say, okay, how, how can I help you today? What are we here for? What, what do you need? And the first thing I'd said was, I don't need to talk about my childhood. Yeah. Like I don't, that's got nothing to do with it. I just want to talk about here and now, like teenagehood, nothing. Like I just want to talk about right now. And I had nothing to base that on. 
Pam. It's just that I'd seen all the movies, yeah. right? Yeah. And the inner child workshops. And so I was like, oh God, I don't want to be a cliche here. Like we don't need to do the therapy scene from the Hollywood movie past. Let's just deal with right now. And I thought about this a lot writing this book because I wanted to, the reason why a cliche is a cliche is because it's so true and connected and overused and everybody knows it. And that I wanted to talk about the reality of the fact that things like the inner critic, self-doubt, fear of failure, feeling like we're not creative, they are all things we have learned. They are not things we're born with. Mm. We are born as human beings with two fears, according to research, fear of loud noise and fear of falling. Everything else that we are afraid of, we learn. That includes snakes and spiders and it all like things like in the outside world. And it also includes what we are afraid of about ourselves in our inside world. And so somewhere in our life, we have learned self-doubt. We have learned to judge ourselves. We have learned to criticize ourselves. And we've possibly internalized the judgment, self-doubt, and inner criticism of figures of authority that perhaps caused those first Mm. seeds of doubt to plant in ourselves. I don't think I, I could be wrong, but I don't think I used the phrase in a child. I I, might. I don't, I'm pretty sure you didn't use it. But, (laughs) but totally reformed, like everything that we are and particularly creativity because it is so intuitive and alive in us as kids until we learn somehow for some reason in some situation it should be something to be put away along with childhood and anything else that's childlike or childish or any other shaming words. But I, and what we suffer then is I love that quote of Brene Brown's that I use in the book about the fact that unused creativity metastasizes. It becomes rage. It becomes grief, sorrow, shame, because we are constantly extinguishing, ignoring, disconnecting from a part of ourselves that we're born with. Holly, one of the things connected to that, of course, all these things are connected, of course. I love that you talk about in the book is this idea of having an analog desk and a digital desk. Yes. That really, I thought, wow, that is so true because when we're creating, like yes. in writing, for instance, when you're drafting, you're using a different part of your brain to when you're using, to when you're editing and revising and being more. Absolutely. Like. So I love this idea of having two different writing spaces where you can be really playful and creative and everything in one. And no, you can be that in both, but then also saving the kind of technology and those aspects of it for the kind of digital desk. It was a game changer for me. Pam and I got it from Austin Cleon. I was reading his books, Show Your Work and Steal Like an Artist. And I was reading those two books when I was in that period of bereavement that I talked about earlier. And this idea of that that he talks about in those books where 
you use different parts of your brain to do different parts of creative output. He calls himself a writer who draws. So he's big into sort of, he's great. He's an artist basically, but he's also a writer. So in his office, he's got his desk with all of his, all those luscious uh, stationary things that all of us stationary addicts like dribble over. He's got all of his pens, different types of card, paper, crayons, pencils. He loves to cut out. He makes poetry out of like bits of newspaper that he cuts out and glues it it all together. So then he brings in the collage element and he says that there is nothing allowed on that desk that's digital. So his tablet, his laptop, his printer, anything like that is all on the opposite desk in his office. And he was also responsible for reminding me It's a nice tie-in actually because reading his work was also responsible at that time when I couldn't write. I was sitting down at the keyboard, I couldn't write and I started running. Something that he talks about is your brain tells your body as much as your body tells your brain. If you are sitting stagnant at a computer in front of a screen, your body doesn't have the chance to be telling your brain what it knows with feeling, sensation, responses to movement. So that fed into me running, which obviously really worked for me and was very effective. But similarly, our body, like when you're at an analog desk, you use your body differently to when you're sitting in front of a laptop. So your body is communicating with you all the time. Maybe you sit down at your analog desk because as soon as I read that, I immediately went into my office and was like, and there's a photo in the book of my two desks in the house that Joy built. And I just divided everything. And on the analog desk, I filled it with everything that my senses just lost their minds. Senses have minds. Lost their minds over. Like fountain pens and ink and paper. And I love, I go out for a walk and I collect interesting rocks or shells yeah. or twigs and and my partner Sam says going out for a walk with me is like coming home with a really overexcited dog because I just upend my like pockets because I've found a beautiful leaf or and they all go on my writing desk the handwriting the analog desk and I fill it with essential oils and flowers and I stick pictures on the wall it's very tactile it's very immersive it's it's um, a raw lump of labradorite that flashes when it catches the light. It's like my magpie bowerbird space. Mm -hmm. And then right next to it is this beautiful, also weirdly, because there is not really anything about me that's a minimalist, but there is (laughs) shock, spoiler, but right next to my analog desk, there is my digital desk that is really satisfyingly neat decluttered my bluetooth keyboard setup maybe like speakers laptop printer and there's that really satisfying order of the tools Mm. it feels Mm. very much like it's the tool space and the analog desk is the dream space and in addition to and in partnership to how leaving my desk to run, worked with coming back to my desk to write in small steps. 
having an analog disc and a digital disc work together in that my body reacts differently at either one. Mm. And when I'm handwriting at the analog desk and I'm playing with seed pods or I'm playing my music box or rifling through old letters or bits of bobs or scraps of newspaper or whatever, you can almost feel the currents of energy and you can feel your imagination lighting up. And if you pay attention, you might get goosebumps when you look at a photo or you read a line in another book and you can feel the prickles on your scalp. Your body is always saying, oh, pay attention to this. I love this. But if I tried doing all of it at the same desk where the digital space is, it was too cluttered. It was too messy. My brain didn't know exactly what I was doing there. Am I on my laptop? Oh no, okay, I'll push my laptop aside and look here. It, my, it was like there were cross signals. Yeah. But separate the two and there was much more sort of harmony and flow between the different parts that my, of my brain that my brain was using. Incredible. Mm. Game changer for me. Yeah, I really love that idea. Mm. Great. And, of course, it plays into that whole thing that we were talking about of when we were a kid and you loved to draw and get yes. out and your texters. Yes. You and remember that. we had stations yes. in your classroom or preschool or daycare or babysitter or the kitchen table with your mum, brother, sister, caregiver, whoever, chances are, hopefully, we all have some kind of experience as children when it was like, now we're going to finger paint at the finger painting station. Now we're going to do craft at the craft station. Now we're doing reading in the reading corner. Like everything is connected, but they each had their own little station that I thought about while I was writing because Joseph Campbell wrote about bliss stations. Oh, okay. And, and Austin Cleon talks about that in his books as well. And giving yourself as an adult the space to do the thing, wouldn't it be lovely if we all had enough space in our houses to have a finger painting oh, corner? Yeah. <laughs> but to ju- just the difference between the different parts of our brain that we use for our work. And it could be with any creative like creative outlet, whether it's visual art, writing, anything that you're making. So let's say that you are a painter for the joy it brings you. You're a joy painter and meaning that you're not a professional painter in the sense that it's not your livelihood. But maybe you are painting for joy and meaning and value that it brings you. And you also want to share those paintings in this digital world online. Maybe you have a space, maybe you have your painting area, and maybe that is very separate from the outer world area. Mm -hmm. It's inner world and outer world. And that's analog is the inner and the digital is the outer. And that's, that's something that runs through the whole book is my, the way that I frame it is kind of argument is the wrong word, but it's putting forward a case to the reader about things that I thought about since I wrote The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, which is that in my experience, we have a landscape inside of us that's no different to outer landscapes in the world that we love. 
And that landscape inside of us is where all of our dreams and hopes and grieve, like the things we grieve, griefs and joys, they are all in there. And that's the creative jungle. That's the forest. That's the place where everything that means anything to us that we create comes from. And we, you can feel for years like there's nothing there. But like you said at the beginning of our conversation, you crack yourself open, meaning that you just turn towards it. And it's extraordinary that you will find that there is always life there. There is a light there waiting for you. Years can go by and you might not have created anything. And it is so extraordinary to me that you can feel like it's dead inside. I have felt it myself countless times and you turn towards it and spend some time there and all of a sudden it starts as a shoot and then you are and then you are just awash in this land that you remember because we lived in it as kids. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. Very powerful. Thank you. Tell us, I won't keep you too much longer, Holly, because we could talk about this all day. Always. This is how we roll, Pam. This is how we roll. This is how we do it. And I do want people to actually read the book, so we don't want to give away too (laughs) much. True. That's a good point. That's a good point. But one thing I would love you to tell us a little bit about is who is Starshine and how did she help you in the process of your your creativity? Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for asking. You know that I'm going to light up talking about this because this gives me an opportunity to talk about many things I love. There is a chapter in the house that Joy built that explores that terrible bully, bully, uh, the inner critic, and where the inner inner critic comes from and how inner critic is different to self-doubt. There's another chapter on self-doubt as well. And the mindset or remedy that I meet and that I cultivate to meet my inner critic with is not a term that I have coined. It's been around for a while. It's the inner fan. And it's basically a force equal and opposite to the power of the inner critic. Now, my inner critic has had decades of living alone up there in my mind. And cultivating my inner fan is something relatively recent in my life. So there's a bit of catching up to do. But Starshine is the name of my favorite imaginary, if you like, wasn't imaginary to me, imaginary kind of my little pony, best friend in the 80s. And I loved her. I loved everything about Starshine, her rainbow mane and... She had a star, a golden star on her rump. I think I remember um, that, My Little Pony. Oh, my God. She was just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm engendering Starshine as she. They, I, I don't think My Little Ponies had genders. Starshine was heaven and Starshine had solo adventures up in the, in the other world in the sky. She, the, the, she, they caught rainbow light up into the sky and played with the stars and the rest of the Milky Way and just was on it was on her own. I'm gonna call her a her because she's a her yeah. to me. Yeah. And I related to that. I was I was an only child when I had Starshine in my life, a little figurine at the time. And I had lots of solo adventures in Mum's garden and down at the sea and 
And that freedom and that magic of the outer world and the inner world were one and the same in me. And as I talk about in the book, then we grow up and the growing up shouldn't mean that we grow out of that. But for so many of us, it does. And it did for me for various reasons. So it took, it took years for me to discover that I could meet far from the voice of starshine in my head. I could meet the voices of criticism and judgment in my mind with the play and power that I remembered from starshine. So my inner critic is met by my inner fan who I refer to as starshine. But my inner fan is not any one person or thing or being. It's a feeling, if you like. And it's, it is everything from how Starshine made me feel when I was a kid to having the energy of the greatest sort of sports mum on the sidelines that you've ever seen. Not aggressive, but so passionate and such a massive cheerleader that even when I fuck up, that energy is there on the sidelines going, you tried, girl. You did really good. But you couldn't have done It's like the greatest sports mum ever. And then also combined with, Pam, I can't believe I'm going to say this publicly. Also, my inner fan is also Channing Tatum. And it is. <laughs> it's too late to say that, Tolly, because you've already said it in the book. I know, but I'm still in denial about the fact people are reading this and it's out in the public. So my inner fan is like Channing Tatum when he's dancing to Pony in Magic Mike or in Magic Mike 2 when he's dancing with all of his friends or when he puts videos on Instagram wearing a princess hat building a castle for his daughter. So I, I cannot hide from the truth being that I very much enjoy the feeling that I get with my inner fan where I'm trying something, I'm trying to be brave or I'm trying to encourage myself. I very much enjoy the feeling of imagining Channing Tatum's face looking at me and going, you got this girl. Or <laughs> he may or may not have a shirt on um, also in this scenario. Yeah, I'm, um, I know which way that goes. <laughs> or he's got a princess hat on and he's building a castle and he's looking at me and he's, you can do this, Ringles. You, it's fine. And what I love about harnessing that energy with him in particular is we are not boxed. We are no one thing. He is not just magic might. He is also somebody who builds an amazing princess castle and, and writes children's books. It's that power of I can be more than the boxes that I or other things in life or situations in life shoehorned me into. And so that energy of my inner fan, of all of those things, it I call it starshine to honour that first sort of magical companion and energy companion I had when I was a kid. And also because it just sounds quite perfect, doesn't it? <laughs> like. <I love> it. <laughs> Have you got, have you still got a little star shine? Have you got your own? I, somewhere I do. I think that she might be in a tub somewhere, but what has been beautiful before the house that Joy built came out, 
it was my birthday in July and my family bought me my little pony starshine a jewelry to wear oh gorgeous I love it so I will be packing that for book tour yes and I might be the only one who knows what it means but I will have a front and center necklace with starshine on because that's that is the that's the beautiful thing about the energy of an inner fan, right? You can decide based purely on joy and feeling good what that inner fan energy and story is that we tell ourselves to meet the story of the inner critic in our minds because it's just a story. It's a very convincing one. But it is just a story that our mind tells itself. Yeah. And it's come from somewhere. And the desperately hard thing to understand about it is that all of the harshness of the inner critic, it comes from a needing to be loved. Yeah. And wanting, it comes from scarcity. It comes from wanting love. So when I, practice an inner fan in my mind depending on how I'm feeling and what I need and context it's not that I imagine that my inner fan loving my inner critic or doing anything with my inner critic it's just turning towards that arms wide open feeling of if my mind can criticize itself there is a muscle I can also develop and build up where my mind is starshining myself. And if that requires Channing Tatum giving me a solo dance, then so be it while telling me you are brave and you can do this. I'm all for it. I think it's Absolutely. (laughs) Holly, this may have come up when we spoke before, but when I heard Mm. it in the book, in the audio book I listened to, The House That Joy Built, I didn't register that I'd heard it before. Mm. So one of the publishing companies that rejected your manuscript, Alice Hart, later on made an offer for the same book. And I think that's a really interesting thing for any writers out there to hear because obviously you want your manuscript to be in the best state it can be in before you submit it to a publisher. But there's this kind of sense that, you know, once you get a rejection from a publisher or they say, no, we're not interested, that's it. It's finite. They're never, ever going to want to look at it again. So I was really interested that they weren't the publisher that subsequently published it, but they actually yes. did want to. So incredible, isn't yeah. it? Huge, like an incredible learning experience and lesson. The way it came about was this publishing company had a competition for an unpublished manuscript where I think you needed to submit the first three chapters and and then you went from there. And so I had the first three chapters of The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, finally crafted and honed, and I submitted those three chapters to this competition, and I waited, and then I got an automated email reply telling me that I hadn't been successful in progressing to the next stage. Thank you very much, and that was it. So the failure was implied these three chapters are not good enough for what we need. These three chapters are not what we're looking for. These three chapters are not publishable. Like my mind interpreted, like any rejection that we're all familiar with, your mind interprets the rejection and what it's telling you. And so that's what my mind was telling me that this 
implied rejection was saying about my first three chapters of Alice Hart. I wasn't a good enough writer to be published. My chapters weren't good enough to be published. And is that the end of the road? But I sat still with myself and weirdly, and I think it's because I had about, I think the first three chapters were maybe 15,000 words because a rejection like that in my life prior to that experience was something that knocked me off my feet and probably stopped me from trying anything similar again for years because that sense of confirmed failure was so powerful. It's so powerful when we perceive that we have failed at something. And it reinforces those, the negative voices of the Absolutely. They grow. They power up. Of course they don't want it. That's because you're rubbish. Yeah. They become like, they like increase in their Avengers level, their superhero-ness, their strength, their villainness gets even stronger. But weirdly, with this rejection from this company and the competition from this publisher, I sat really quietly and having written 15,000 words, there was something that I felt inside of myself that I was unfamiliar with. And it was that I was not going to let their rejection stop me from believing that Alice Hart mattered to me. Mm. So I kept writing. And if we fast forward maybe three years or so, those exact same three chapters and the rest of the manuscript, which I'd finished writing and had gotten into the same level of quality as the first three, my agent, I had an agent at that time, and I won't go through the process of getting an agent because that's a different question and conversation, but there was a process and I don't want to skip over that because I hate it before I was published, I used to get so frustrated by writers saying, and then I got an agent and I was thinking, but it's not that easy. How do you do it? So there definitely was a process and I had an agent and they submitted those exact three chapters plus the rest of the manuscript to Australian publishers. And the publisher that rejected the three chapters in the competition came out gangbusters arm swinging to make an offer to publish it. And it was an invaluable lesson in how not finite these things are and in how subjective they are. Did a different person read the submission pile for the competition that read the manuscripts for Alice Hart and put an offer in? These are things that you don't even know to think about when you are brave and you do these sorts of things with your creativity, your work. And as I say in the book, that implied rejection and failure of the first three chapters not progressing anywhere in that competition, that could have stopped me writing. Yes. And I cannot bear, the thought is too painful to even go down that road and follow where that path would have taken me if I'd stopped writing, if I'd believed Alice Hart didn't matter to me, and if I'd not stuck to my conviction in my soul about what being in her world felt like for me. And I loved it in there with her. 
And if I had listened to that rejection and failure as being definitive and more important than the love that I felt writing Alice onto the page. Oh, no, I think that's, I think that's really important. I'm really glad you included that in the book. Mm, Yeah, thank you. It is. It's so important. There's so much that we don't have control of, just blanket statement. And particularly with what happens to our, to the creativity that we offer outside of our bodies and our worlds and our lives. But what I think I have figured out is one thing that I can control is answering the question when I'm creating, which is, which means when I'm writing, is answering the question, do I love this? And if I am writing from a place of love, if I love the story that I'm writing, that is the best I can do. And that is the singular focus that when I'm in a first draft, that is where I keep my focus. Because if I try and write for any reason outside of that in a first draft, I'm not writing from the true and pure raw place. Mm-hmm. And that's what that kind of all played into not giving up on Alice Hart in that rejection in the competition. Yeah. So glad you didn't. Thanks, Pam. (laughs) I did want to ask you before we wrap up. So obviously there's all these things and much, much more in the book, whether you listen to that on audio or grab a copy. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was, of course, you recorded the audio book. I did. How was that? that It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I had no audiobook recording experience before that. The only voiceover experience that I had was doing the narration for Back to Nature, the ABC series that I was in with Aaron Pedersen in 2021. But I think what serves me well probably is, in terms of feeling like I could do it, I should say, is that I've read my stories out loud since I was a kid. Mm. And it's, it's just falling into that routine, that routine might even be the wrong word, falling into that sort of zone, that yeah. mode with yourself where you start reading and you remember how you read as a kid and how you were read too. And beautiful to read the book out loud myself because I remember the tones and inflictions and feelings from writing it. So it was a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. And it makes listening to the audio books, like listening to you talk, just so authentic and makes it so much more meaningful, I think, having you. That's beautiful to hear. Yes. Yeah, that's so good to know. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And Holly, the other thing that you've implemented on your website, I noticed, Mm. uh, is a thing called Joyrise. Can you tell us about that? Oh, that's right. So I thought that... It might be a it might be a really nice opportunity. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> After people read or listen to the house that Joy built and they close the last cover, to keep the possibility of a tendril between us going. And so I've opened an area of my website up called the Joy Rise, and it's a space for questions and answers between my readers and myself where if somebody reads my novels or they read The House That Joy Built and they have a question about creativity that they would love 
me to answer, they can go onto my website and submit the question. And then whenever I have the resource and capacity, I will answer and share them on my website and in my newsletter, which people can subscribe to as well. So it's a way of keeping the conversation going and and offering that space to people that might not feel like they can ask a question at an event or for whatever reason at an event or on social media and a way of kind of just keeping it circular that readers gave me the gift of inspiration by asking me questions about creativity that made me think maybe I can write this book And now if I can offer a space for questions about creativity where anything that I have to say might be of value, it's just like a beautiful circular way it feels to keep it going. So I don't know how it's going to go and I don't know how long it will be online for or what it will become, but I thought I'd love to open it up and see what comes of it Mm. and if it can be of value to people. That's a lovely idea. Of course, you are going on tour imminently. I am. My God, (laughs) I am. Yes, starting next week on the 18th in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm going to a number of capital cities. All of the information is on my website and on my, it's pinned to the top of my Instagram profile. Tickets are all available. You can find it, as I said, on my website or through my Instagram profile. You can see everywhere that I'm going. And I would just love to, I can't wait to see you, Pam, and I would love to see as many people that want to come as possible. It'd be gorgeous. Oh, it's going to be fun. So I'm really looking forward to, we haven't met in person yet. I know. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be be glorious. And this episode will be out this week. So all of that information. Is relevant. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Holly, I'm going to let you go because we've once again chatted a lot. Thanks Thank you so much for coming on the podcast yet again. A joy. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.